Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Dame Julia Unwin, Chair of the Inquiry into Civil Society Futures, which published in 2018. The same year, she wrote a report on the role of kindness in public policy for the Carnegie Trust. For 10 years, she was Chief Executive of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, where she was the driving force behind the 2016 report, UK Poverty, Causes, Costs and Solutions. You can find Julia on Twitter at Julia Unwin. Julia, welcome. Thank you. Now, looking at your Twitter feed, I notice you've endorsed a recent blog from Abigail Scott about an exhibition by photographer Gillian Edelstein, where she asked her subjects the question, what is the one thing you could not live without? Do you think that we should be asking people in poverty more and different questions? I think we need a fundamental rethink and recognise that we're here to serve people in poverty, to serve people who are disadvantaged, to serve people who haven't been given a fair chance. And if you don't do that, you don't just ask people questions, you listen really carefully. And I think for 40 years, my life in public service, the voluntary sector and the private sector, we've taken our eye off that. We've forgotten that we are here to serve. And unless we listen really acutely, we'll continue to get it wrong. You started your working life as a field worker for the Liverpool Council for Voluntary Services and other roles have included community liaison officer, director of the Homeless Network, chair of the Refugee Council, charity commissioner. The common threads seem to be social policy and civil society, also known as the voluntary sector. Is that a fair summary? Well, I struggle to see a common thread. I think an awful lot of my working life has been accident and opportunity mixed with a bit of curiosity. So I've gone for interesting jobs and had fantastic roles. I think the common thread is, yes, everything you've said, but it's also about social change. It's also about working in the places where you can make a difference. But to pretend there was a plan would be to mislead you. In the report on civil society futures, you say that civil society risks becoming irrelevant if we do not change. And you say that you've heard from the people you interviewed for the report, and there were 3,000 of them, that the ways we organise aren't always right for what we want to do now. Where would you look for new ways of organising? Well, I think new ways of organising are happening all the time. If you just look at the ways in which people have responded to the flooding in this area and the way in which communities galvanise at a time of crisis, if you look at what the young people are doing around Extinction Rebellion, you look at the different ways people are taking action. And I think my point in Civil Society Futures was not that the whole of civil society will become irrelevant, because actually how we organise and how we live and how we work with our fellow citizens will always change but that the institutions and organisations risk irrelevance if they don't understand new ways of operating. That's interesting because a lot of modern ways of looking at service delivery, such as the Wigan deal, are placing quite a high emphasis on the role of civil society. And in fact, in Wigan, they've invested around, I think it was 10 million over 10 years in the third sector. So uh, the idea that it might be becoming irrelevant in some ways is quite intriguing. Well, I think what we were trying to say is that local government, places like Wigan, have and always have been entirely dependent on the network of association that takes place in any community. 
our hospitals would collapse if people weren't taking casseroles around to their neighbours when they come out of hospital. You know, if people weren't sweeping the step from snow, nothing would function. And we've got to recognise that total dependency on the community. I worry that we've taken it for granted, that public service deliverers have just assumed that will continue. And of course, in tough times, people do help each other, but that's not inexhaustible and it can result in a sense of division and alienation. So what I think is clever about the Wigan deal is a recognition that that's real, that that community activity is what keeps a place going. Mm. Without it, we would be nowhere. And that therefore you need to work differently with those groups, networks, associations, organisations. There are parts of civil society, though, who at the behest of government, both local and central, have become much closer to local authorities and much more like them. And the relationship has been one of transaction. Now, that works at certain times for certain services. You can procure the people who clean your offices if that's what you want. But unless you do that in a really considered way, there's a risk that you're treating the purchasing of services to vulnerable people in the same way that you're procuring your IT kit. Mm. If you do that, you'll make big mistakes and you won't get the benefits of working closely with the community. Now, I think the big change that the Wigan deal and others across the North West have shown us is that the community is not a resource for local government. Local government is a resource for the community. And we have to remember that at all times. And that's what the deal seems to me to be about, is a new relationship with those organisations that are what we would have said in the 70s outside the state. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing that strikes me about your vision for civil society is that it's going to take courageous leadership. It takes courage to move from a command and control approach to creating an enabling environment and empowering people. I might argue, for example, that few councils have managed to emulate the Wigan deal because there's a shortage of leaders of the calibre of Donna Hall. What do you think to that? I think Donna Hall and others like her have done remarkable things. But I think if they were sitting here, they'd say they didn't do it on their own, that it's a network of leaders that makes things change and a recognition that we are, at some stages of our life, leaders at other points followers. Sometimes, in my experience, in the same hour, you move from being a leader to being a follower and back again. And it's how we get skilled at doing that. And I think the exceptional leaders in local government that we see today recognise that. Mm. Sometimes in the senior positions, sometimes they're not. That's just how life is. And that's the network of leadership that matters. But I'd also say that it's not just courage you need. You need permission to lead. And one of the things that troubles me is that in our... We've, we've moved away from the command and control mandate, you know, do what I say and do it immediately. And we've moved to a place where because of concerns about legitimacy and people's voices, we can make it very hard for people to lead. One of my concerns is how do we make organisations possible to lead? And how do we support people who are leading and who are leading in a good and creative and networked way with others? Because it can be a lonely place. So you're asking yourself that, that question. Would you, would you care to say what you've found about the answer? Well, I think so what we far. found in civil society futures, and I think I found it in the work I did on compassion in public policy, is these almost invisible networks of support that exist around the place um, and the ways in which people make deep connections with each other and not necessarily surface them and make them very visible and public. They don't always have to have an acronym. Mm. They are just the way people back each other oh. up. But I've also seen the shadow side of that, which is the way in which social media and other forms of 
um, contact can be so disparaging and so punishing and so destructive. And I think one reason our leaders often seem paralysed is because we don't give them the permission and the space in which to lead. Leading, for me, is always about being able to make mistakes, admit to those mistakes, try again, try another way. And actually, we operate now in a rather punishing environment for that. Yeah. In, in, the, in the future, are you looking to be a facilitator of those networks that you've spoken about? Well, personally, I'm very interested in how people who've done a long career like mine pass on power and knowledge and wisdom to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I think those of us who are no longer doing the big jobs ought to be a bit careful about how we take facilitating roles. On the other hand, I know stuff. And if I can help, I want to help. And I think what Civil Society Futures has done is create a roadmap for how we can behave differently and how institutions and organisations can adapt to their behaviours, practices, attitudes. And what I've been really gratified by is seeing groups of people getting together to do just that, to understand about a different way of working. Now, Civil Society Futures was by no means the only voice in this. Lots of people have been saying the same thing. That either means we were stating the blindingly obvious or we were actually going with the grain, which I believe we were, of recognising that we cannot carry on doing what we've always done because the coming decade is so different, Mm. so disruptive, um, so challenging, that if we do what we were doing 20 years ago, we will simply fail. I do detect that you're an optimist about all of this. I'm a huge optimist. I think difficult times have always been when we've been at our very best. When you look at the history of civil society, you know, the Sheffield Civil Society that you can see outside this office was created in the heat of the Industrial Revolution when people's lives were absolutely miserable and fraught and there was huge change going on. Mm. Huge waves of voluntary organisations created between the First and Second World Wars when they thought... They fought the war to end all wars. How tragic is that? The work with displaced people and refugees after the Second World War, it goes on. At times of crisis and challenge, we as humans are at our very best. And the facility we have to come together to protest, to make change happen, to run services, to care for our neighbours, is unparalleled. And how we do that and how we get out of the way if we're stopping that happening, I think is the skill we have to learn and relearn every time. But I'm hugely optimistic we can do it, because we've done it before. That's fantastic. What do you believe are the most significant developments right now that were moving your vision for the future of civil society forward? That's a big question. Mm. I mean, we're facing a time where our democracy is dented, to put it politely, where the lack of trust in our political leaders is massive, where the constitution of the UK looks like it will change very dramatically in the next 10 years. I never would have thought I could imagine independent Scotland or United Ireland, but it's not impossible now to see that happening. Where the power of cities has changed and is changing as power is being seized. We're living at a time of genuine climate crisis and emergency, and the coronavirus has only concentrated our minds on how interconnected we are globally. What's happening on the capital market signals precisely how risky our globalised framework is for the way we live. And in the UK, our social fabric is failing. The stories day after day after day about the scale of poverty and disadvantage are not just painful to read. They demonstrate a country that is not coping and is not doing well with the transition we're making to a new way of operating. So those are the huge challenges Mm. we face. 
but they're not so big that we can't engage with them. They're all ones in which people working in their communities, working in community organisations, working in voluntary organisations, have always had to address. It's just we might have to address them rather differently this time round. Rather more quickly, don't you think? <laughs> I think there is urgency. I suspect there was huge urgency when people came in from the camps in in, Euro- in Europe in 1945. I think there was urgency when disabled servicemen were discharged with what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. You know, there has always been urgency. What matters is that we have the tools and the self-belief to think we can do something about it. When will we reach a tipping point, do you think, or are we already there? I don't, don't believe there is one tipping point. I think things move at different paces and at different times. But I would say, for example, decades of talk about climate crisis crystallised with Extinction Rebellion and their call on government to declare a climate emergency, which, to everybody's astonishment, they did. I think that's been a tipping point in realisation. not convinced it's a tipping point in action yet, but there is, it is no longer feasible for people to talk about this not being an issue. I mean, there are some who do, but actually common ground has moved on that. And that, for me, is always the moment to take action when you've moved on that. But there's not one tipping point for everything. There are different things. I would say the last general election was a political tipping point because of a recognition of the deep despair and anger in some parts of England, which resulted in people changing and reversing generations of how they voted. I'd say the Brexit vote should have taught us something. I personally think we should have seen the Brexit vote coming and if we'd been listening more carefully, we would have known precisely how that vote was going to go. But it was a surprise to the establishment. Kirsty McNeil of Save, Save the Children uh, in her excellent blog this morning said, we're losing the battle over narrative and norms. You don't seem to feel quite that way. Well, I think we are losing the battle over narrative and we can't afford to. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think optimism matters is because of people like you and me who lead largely good lives. We, it's a self-indulgence not to be pessimistic. So many people's lives are so grim at the moment that people whose lives are not that and who are in a position or have a platform, have a voice, have freedom and agency, need to be focused, not in a fluffy way about a better future, but actually building that quite systematically. And so I sort of hesitate about the word optimism because I think it's more to do with positive change and recognising that change is possible. It has always happened. We can make it happen again. And that to give in to the deep divisions in society, the hostile narrative about people who are not seen as successful, is to sell everybody else short. So for me, being positive is an absolute obligation um, because cynicism and being depressed about it is just a waste of energy. So it's not to say I'm not realistic. I think Kirsty is right. I think we are losing the narrative and we have therefore got to think really differently. I think the work that Joseph Rowntree Foundation, my old organisation, are doing about reframing how we talk about poverty, making it clear it's a risk to all of us, not just to them, making it clear that we can't continue to, in the jargon, other people and treat people as if they are completely different from us. Mm. I've written about how we frame really complex ideas. And I th- one thing I've learned is if we talk about things happening to people who are different from us, we're always missing the point. The things that motivate me and keep me secure are having a stable home, having enough to get by, being surrounded by people I love. 
Why would anybody sleeping on the streets in Sheffield today not need exactly those same things? And the risk is that public policy has become so transactional and so motivated by numbers and counting, and there's nothing wrong with counting, we have to understand where the money's going, but so motivated by assuming the outcomes are held by professionals instead of recognising that nobody ever rescues anyone else from poverty. Nobody ever gets somebody off the streets. People do that themselves, Mm -hmm. and our job is to serve and help them. But unless we can paint a picture of a future in which your and my children and potentially grandchildren can imagine a better future, I think it's just a bit of self-indulgence. So I do think this issue of the narrative matters. I think we need to be much, much more serious about understanding what other people are saying and not live in a bubble in which people all think the same. I was always teased at Joseph Rantry Foundation because I believe everybody should read a bit of the mail every day. I think it's good for your soul to recognise the different perspectives people come from. These things have very different resonance, but we have to get hold of it and we have to do it with some urgency and some certainty and particularly some confidence. I think people who've wanted to drive social change have often lacked confidence. They haven't been prepared to say these social problems are not inevitable. We have the solutions to them. We know what can be done. And we know what the cost, risk and threat to society is if we fail to do it. We've got to be more confident about how we say that. And I think part of what Kirsty was talking about is we need to get hold of that narrative and say it with more certainty. Okay, so one thing is getting hold of that narrative. Uh, So speaking, writing with more confidence and certainty. You spoke about building. What are the other building blocks that you think are out there that we can the levers that you can pull here well I think there's a growing constellation of people who are working very differently and in really tough times finding new ways of navigating there is a bit of a risk that we spend an awful lot of time talking to each other and thinking about how to do things instead of doing stuff Um, and I think a more humble leadership is more willing to say we tried it, it didn't work, we'll try again, we'll do something different. But there's no doubt we have to work together with other people. Nobody has a monopoly on all the best ideas. So I think how people engage with each other, and social media, which I've been critical of, does give us a chance to share our best ideas, to make connections with people we'd never bump into in the street, to find those connections. Um, but I also think we have to take action in the way that Donna Hall has done in Wigan, and Carolyn Wilkins is doing in Oldham, And some of our most senior politicians are beginning to talk about a new, more connected way which listens much more carefully, expects maybe much more of people. Citizens have to play their part too, but creates the frameworks in which that can happen. So do you think it's the leaders in councils and the health service that's the most critical in in this revolution in the way we deliver services Mm. and... I think future leaders will not come with labels necessarily. I think there are people who are called chief executive who run local authorities, health authorities, housing associations, big foundations like I did. And there are leaders who are influential. But if you say command and control is no longer what leaders have, then actually we all have more in common. Mm. Some people hold a bit more resource than others. Some people are at different stages of their working lives and want to do things differently. But actually, it's the mix that does it. And there is tremendous leadership in our communities. I have never visited a a state regeneration scheme and not found a usually very angry woman who was behind it, who's never earned 
ounce of the salary of somebody who's got a chief executive yeah. title, but has shown leadership qualities, ability to galvanise, ability to mobilise and get people to do things that most of us would die for. So I think leadership is found in all sorts of places. So you've talked about a growing co- coalition. Do you think anger is going to be the catalyst for that then? I think anger on its own is destructive, but it is a hugely powerful driver as well. And I think it's an emotion that we shouldn't be afraid of. I think it runs risks because I think in our divisive society, anger can often be attached to individuals. We can blame people very rapidly. Things escalate far too soon. And I think that's all dangerous and makes it harder for people to take risks, harder for people to be the first, to be a pioneer on doing something because you don't want to put your head above a parapet. But the righteous anger that drives you to say this must change is the thing that keeps you going because actually social change is driven by love, anger and a determination to have things different. And we should privilege all three of those. They're all really important drivers. I suppose we're touching on systems thinking a little now, aren't we? Is that something you've thought a lot about yourself? I have to confess that I never really understand systems thinking when people start talking about it, Mm. because it feels to me as if frequently it generates a whole plethora of jargon and ways of talking which turn me off. And then I encounter it for real and understand what's happening. So I've been working in a city recently where there is a growing network of people who use mental health services and practitioners and policymakers who are working in a really networked way as equals, developing new ideas and new approaches. That system's thinking, I'm in. But sometimes the writing about it and the talking about it feels to me as if it makes it overcomplicated. But the notion that we change systems from within by engaging all the Mm. actors and that the actors include the people use those services because god knows we all use services at some stage in our lives if that's what systems thinking is about i'm incredibly impressed by the power that has to change things yeah i I also think myself as a reflection that if at the grassroots level we understood a little more about systems we'd understand for example that one of the the phenomena within a system under pressure is that people get scapegoated absolutely and just that realization might help It might, and it would be linked, if we could realise that and link it also to my concern that we are not listening acutely enough. Some of the biggest, most dangerous upheavals we've encountered in the last few years, I think of things like the child sexual exploitation rings in some of the northern towns, if you think about the tragedy of Grenfell Tower, if you think about the disgrace about the Windrush scandal, they were all things that people in communities in churches and mosques, knew were going on. Mm. And somehow we didn't give people enough of a voice or didn't listen acutely enough or were, as Margaret Heffernan would say, willfully blind about some things. And that means we then allow a major crisis and scandal to erupt. So I think the combination of working very closely at community level but listening very closely would change how public service operates because it would be better informed better enabled you wouldn't run any service of any sort without focusing on your customer and yet in public service we create huge boundaries and we do listen to patients and service users but we don't do that acute listening where we hear the uncomfortable things and hear the things that make us feel really nervous and really scared because those are the things that will change everything in the future i can't help but reflect how optimistic you are about british society and 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 I'm feeling I'm feeling challenged myself, actually, because I sometimes think that, you know, we're moving closer to 
the US and I'm not a big fan of the kind of huge gulf between the rich and the poor in the States. And I noticed there's an article in uh, Sheffield Unlimited last month about the rise of trailer parks in the UK. But you think we're going to arrest that decline, arrest that movement? Well, there's always a risk you sound like Pollyanna when you talk like this. <laughs> I don't want to do that. There is no doubt that the gross inequality in this country is holding us back. We are wasting talent and skills and damaging lives at a rate that should make every capitalist quake because it's so dangerous what's going on. There's no doubt that the existence of trailer parks around many of our big cities shows us that housing and homelessness is a national scandal, what's happening. My optimism comes from knowing that if there is the will, and I think there's beginning to be a coalescence of will, we can make huge changes. But there is risk. I mean, there is always risk that we descend into a dystopia where we don't talk to our neighbours, where things like pandemic flu or flooding, which must be on my mind today because it's such a big issue just this morning, but also the huge disconnect between people in communities becomes so dangerous that we head in a really difficult and troubling direction. And we've seen that happen. In our lifetimes, we've seen that happen in some countries. I think we, there is urgency, therefore, and serious intent about saying we cannot go that way. We cannot become a divided country because, put really crudely, will be economically catastrophic for us. It will also be deeply damaging, not just not only for the poorest people in the country, but for the whole of society. And that's why I would always argue that this agenda of social change is not about them. It's about all of us. Mm. It's about how we want Indeed. to live in the future. Yeah. And I don't know if you've visited places without an effective safety net, welfare safety net, but you don't want to walk down a street where there is no safety net because you are then not safe. And yeah. that seems to me really important for us to explain rather differently we are losing the battle to explain these things at the moment. So, this is the Compassionate Leadership interview. Therefore, we can't ignore your report for the Carnegie Trust, Kindness, Emotions and Human Relationships, the Blind Spot in Public Policy. Uh, the title captures such a radical idea. How did the notion of exploring that arise? When I said I was going to leave the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, I had the great sort of privilege of the Carnegie Trust saying, would you like some time to think about something you haven't had time to think about? And I think they probably thought I'd write something about inclusive growth or stuff like that, which would have been really interesting. And I said, what I'm really interested in is where are our emotions in public policy? Because everything about public policy, everything, and about public service is about relationships. And yet we talk as if everything is about outputs and methodology and metrics and so I put the proposal to them that it would be really interesting to think not about kindness in communities because that's well documented not about kindness from people who help put you to bed at night because you're elderly and you need support those people have always been kind but about how our policy frameworks manage that stuff of human relationships mm. And what I came up with in that was the sense that there are good reasons why we've tried to drive out emotions in public policy. We've driven them out because we want everything to seem to be fair. We want everything to have a measurable input. We imagine that we can establish boundaries between us and others that keep us safe. And all of this is an illusion mm. because we're dealing with people and the most emotional places anyone ever goes to is the office in which they work and yet we behave as if that is a temple of reason and um, rationality 
clearly it isn't. Unless we understand the emotions that drive people, give enough space for those emotions, um, recognise that there is a human connection at all times, we're in danger of measuring lots of things but missing the point. And that's what I tried to argue in that small paper. How would you describe your personal leadership philosophy? Well, that's the sort of question I always imagine there's a textbook answer to. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk about how, what I think matters in leadership. I think the attributes that I hope I demonstrate, and Lord knows I must have failed a million times because everybody has, is that good leaders show generosity. They take the blame and share the credit at all times and always. That they're humble and know that they are there to serve. That Leadership is not God-given. You're there to help make things happen. And fundamentally, that they're curious, that they want to find things out. And the good leaders and the ones who've supported me all my life, and I hope what I show in any leadership role I have, is those three attributes of creating space for other people, being generous with what the perks are as well as what the difficulties are, taking the blame, saying sorry. awful lot of leaders find that hard, but I just think apologise is the best way to do things. Be humble about what you don't know, because how ludicrous would it be if you knew everything? Above all, try to find things out. Ask questions, understand where people are coming from, look really carefully, and most importantly, listen really, really carefully. Because most of the things happening in any organisation are not happening around the boardroom table. The place that most things are happening are at the edges and the borders. And unless you're listening really carefully, you're in danger of running an organisation you don't understand at all. That's a great insight. What do you think about trends in leadership in general, Julia? I think the time has come we've got to recognise there is no superpower of leadership, that we are all at different stages, in a different role, and at different places, leaders, um, and that often we are also followers, and we have to learn some generosity about those boundaries. Now, I don't know if it's true, but there was a time when leadership was described as somebody, usually a man, carrying a flag to the top of the hill and saying, follow me up here. Heroic leadership. Absolutely. I don't know if it worked then. I suspect it didn't, but it absolutely doesn't work now. The current generation of people working in organisations or living in communities don't expect that, and they will not follow in that way. So the really effective leaders I know are often, if we're carrying on with the analogy of on a march, you know, with the weakest people and the slowest at the back, they're pulling, bringing up the rear, they're encouraging and they're coaching and they're supporting they are sometimes having to set out the big picture, but they're often enabling other people to do that too. And I think the best leaders I know are often the ones who seem to have a lower profile, a profile that they can bring out when they need it, but a register of behaviours as opposed to the old-fashioned heroic leadership that I was brought up to expect and never thought I'd be able to deliver. I don't think certainty is the superpower that some people think it is. I think often the most certain people are making the biggest mistakes, which is why I talk about curiosity and being able to ask awkward questions and find things out seems to me to be much more what modern leaders need. And empathy and compassion and an understanding of where people come from is not just about them, it's also about understanding yourself and recognising what you can do well and what you can't. And the generous leader knows to bring on the people who do things rather differently from them. I think we've got to move to a really different space about this and don't not attach leadership labels to individuals, but to ways of behaving. And I think when we do that, we will make far more change in our systems and our networks and our communities. Mm. Hold that thought. 
Is there one of your many achievements that you're most proud of? Well, I had prior warning you were going to ask me this, and um, I've struggled because actually there's lots of things I think I've been part of that I'm really proud of. But one of the things I'm most proud of is how in the 80s and very early 90s in London, when I was director of a small organisation called Homeless Network, a group of organisations concerned with the then rising number of homeless people on the streets managed to come together and persuade what was the Thatcher government in those days, so not the easiest government to work with, that something had to be done. And not just something had to be done, but something could be done, and we had a plan for how to do it. And a significant number of people who were sleeping on the streets were housed out of that. And the reason I'm so proud of it is because it was it had become commonplace to think that people sleeping on the streets was just part of the street scene of London. And the ability of a lot of us, and we were all pretty young and green in our jobs, to say together and collectively, this is not inevitable. This is not like the weather. It is an absolute disgrace and a national scandal. But we're not just going to protest about it. We will give you a plan. We will count the numbers of people here. We will show you how it can be done. And we will make that change happen. And we did it in what are, were less benign circumstances than others we've had. And I think I'm really proud of that because... What I learned from that is the power of collaboration. I suppose the power of optimism, of recognising there is a solution. Because too often we treat things as if that's just always going to be the way. And of course, tragically, there are now rough sleepers back on every street in this country. And that feels to me tragic, but also really, really wrong. Because we know it's not necessary, because we've done it before. We know how to do it. Could we just build on that? Please. I mean, you've talked about the Northwest, and now we're talking about homelessness. It is a serious issue for the Northwest, for Sheffield, yes. for Manchester. How do you think we need to tackle that now? There is a huge body of evidence produced by Joseph Rantry Foundation, among many others, that if you work very closely with people who are homeless and understand their very different circumstances, if you recognise that for most people the first thing they need is the security of a place in which they can stay long term, how we expect anyone to rebuild their lives without that mm. is beyond me. I couldn't live the way I do if I didn't have the security of home, so why would anyone else be different? So housing first in the jargon is you get people housed first and you continue to support them. But most importantly, you make sure that people are not sleeping on the streets for very long. In London, they have a campaign, or they did have a mayor's campaign called No Second Night Out. We should be able to identify anyone who falls through the cracks, who's leaving that desperately dangerous way of life, mm. and get them housed really quickly. That's not beyond our ability. And it's not that expensive, because the real costs we're bearing now are massive numbers of people going to prison, ending up in our A&E hospitals, ending up in our mental hospitals, Unless we're going to become a society that abandons people to die on the streets, that cost will be borne one way or another. Housing people allows people to rebuild their lives really rapidly. Indeed. I mean, my eldest daughter works for a charity and one of, one of her clients was incandescent the other day when she found that her probation officer had um, applied for parole mm. because she actually wanted to stay in prison. That's such a tragedy for a person 
such a tragedy. It's also such a cost to the system. Absolutely. <laughs> so you put both hats on. You know, it's a human tragedy and a waste of an individual's life because what prison does is make people help people commit more crime in the long run. Um, but it's also such a foolish thing to do. But it's done out of desperation because there are so few places for someone to go. Would you like to disclose a mistake you've made on your leadership journey and what you've learned from it? Oh, so many, and I continue to make them. That's just how life is. I think there have been times, and I would say this even quite recently, when I haven't had the courage of my convictions, when I've been too readily set off course by people who were able to claim academic superiority or were just much louder. So even in senior leadership roles, I think there have been times when I haven't pursued things I should have pursued. And I think that's been particularly true in this area which I worked on for Carnegie about human relationships and recognising that there is a moral dimension to these public policy issues, that people are animated and motivated by a concern to say we can do so much better than this. And that a technocratic response is not the best way to tell the story that we need to tell. And I think there have been times I've been intimidated from saying that. I feel much freer now and I intend to carry on saying it. But I look back and I think each time my weakness was being slightly overwhelmed by somebody who seemed to be much cleverer at the time. Is there a person or experience from whom you've drawn inspiration during your career? So many. I can't... I saw that you were going to ask me this question and I thought I've always learnt from other people, been supported by other people, been particularly supported by other women because when I started work, you know, I was not in a female sector. It was a very, there were very few women around and very few women role models. And from the smallest things to the largest, from just hints about how to handle a meeting all the way through to you know, helping me get a decent job, I have been supported by people who have spotted talent and ability. And I think my job is now to carry on doing that for other people. But anyone who gets to any position of leadership without saying they have been supported all the way is not telling the truth, in my view. What does your self-care regime look like? Oh, I wish I had a regime. I do my very best. (laughs) (laughs) I have an extremely supportive family, and particular husband who has encouraged me in everything I've done and make sure I go for walks and don't work all the time and stop working. Um, I, I love going outside. I have a commitment to walking quite a lot every week I do all that but I don't do it nearly as well as I advise other people to do and I should get better at it Is there a book, podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring leaders? Well I was thinking about this and I think it's a really interesting question because I don't actually have a management textbook or a leadership guide that I turn to all the time but I do read novels a lot My self-care involves, and has done since the age of four, always reading novels. And one of the things about the curiosity that I was describing earlier is an interest in understanding how other people's lives operate. Um, I think in this country, one of the scars across our society is the scar of racism and the very different worlds in which, frankly, black and white people so often live. Professional level, there's more mixing, but actually people lead very separate lives. And I've recently read a number of novels by black female novelists, which have given me a privileged insight into a world that is so close to mine and yet so different. Um, And so books like Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, which is about a young black woman in London, or Ordinary People by Diana Evans, 
I have found as transformative and as informative as all sorts of leadership textbooks because actually what it's about is understanding our common humanity but also understanding the things we're still getting so badly wrong. Yeah. So I didn't, it's a different answer from the one I was expecting, but that's what I think. And finally, Julie, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? I've got several. I would advise her to not be in such a rush because actually you're going to be working for a hell of a long time, so keep going and take your time. Not worry so much what other people think about you and have confidence that your instincts are very often right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. And this episode was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield. And the music was brought to you by 96 Bike on CPU Records.